You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Mark chapter 14, would you pray with me as we begin our Bible study this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you into your presence, Lord, knowing that uh, we're always in your presence, knowing that your presence is everywhere, and certainly you dwell in our hearts, the hearts of those that believe in you. But Lord, today we come hungry and thirsty for righteousness. We, we come hungering and thirsting for more of you. We come, Lord, with recognizing that we have a need for that only the God of the universe can fill. And Lord Jesus, we pray that today, through the study of Scripture, that you would fill the hearts of your elect, Lord, those that you have chosen, God, that you have uh, poured out your love upon, Lord, through Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be edified in your presence today. And Lord, that we would leave this place with a greater appreciation and desire to live for you, Lord, a love for you. Father, for the, those that are here this morning and they don't have a relationship with you, we pray that today your word would Bring them into that relationship that your truth, Lord, would open up their ears and their hearts. And that your Holy Spirit would cause them to be born again this morning, Lord. And we just pray, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would be working in all of our lives today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin by reading from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5 to you this morning. These verses will, I believe, set the tone for the rest of our message. And they will hopefully stick in your minds as we go through the word this morning. Uh, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, they'll be on the screen. Uh, and it says, Surely he has borne our grief. There it is. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Friends, we have come to the final hours in the life of Jesus Christ as we have studied through the entire book of Mark verse by verse. Jesus has left Jerusalem with the disciples after having eaten the Passover meal, after having sung a hymn together. They walked together through the streets of Jerusalem across the Kidron Brook and into, onto the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was located. And Jesus, we last week saw him falling down repeatedly in a very distressed state, realizing for the first time that this hour that he's been talking about for many, many days is now upon him. And we had a really close look at how this was affecting him as a human being, looking into his heart, into his uh, very, uh, the, the deepest part of him, so to speak, last week. This week we continue as the story now moves from the Garden of Gethsemane to his first trial, uh, one of six that he would stand on this night. Many people forget that. Jesus stood six different trials throughout the night and into the early morning hours 
of the day of his crucifixion. So a very exhausted, spent Jesus Christ would be trying to carry that plank of his own cross to the hill called Golgotha. And it starts in our study today in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 41, where we read, Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pause here for a moment this morning. If you're following along in your outline, there's just a little spot for note-taking as we go through these verses, things that you may want to jot down or recall later uh, as God speaks to you through His Word this morning. But sadly here, we see that the men who only about an hour before had all pledged that they would never desert their Lord, they were found for the third time to be asleep when Jesus needed them the most. Yet before we pass judgment upon these men, we need to ask ourselves, how many times has the Lord had to wake us up? (laughs) How often are we asleep when we should be awake, seeking Him in His Word, watching with Him in prayer? You see, Christian, I believe with all of my heart that God is calling His church today to wake up. That we live in a very uh, interesting time, to say the least, if not a very key strategic time in the history of mankind. And you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a believer in the Word of God, you need to know the times that we live in. The season that you are living in the spectrum of human history, God has seen fit to cause you to be born and to live And to be a part of his church, his bride, in this most interesting of times. Yet so often we find ourselves lulled to sleep by materialism. By the comfort of money. By the comforts of our flesh. The things we like to put around us and entertain ourselves with. I can speak only for myself when I say that I know it's far too often for me. I can only pray that every day my spirit would be awakened with a love for Jesus and the things of God. You can almost sense there's a bit of irony in Jesus' tone here as he questions them the third time. He comes up, are are you still sleeping and resting? (laughs) Really, guys? After three times of me pleading, after me falling down in front of you, sweating drops of blood, crying out to my Father in heaven, you're you're still sleeping? But he breaks away from his attempted humor there when he says, it is enough. How gracious is our Lord. He knows that this isn't the moment to try to instruct his disciples or to point out their weaknesses. Again, I'd like to take this moment to apply this verse to our lives. Because just when we might think that Jesus must be disappointed in us, In our weaknesses, we find that he knows us only too well. We're pleased to find in him a gracious attitude of unconditional love. He's willing, for the time being, to overlook our faults until the right moment presents itself. Don't you love that about the Lord? You know, I so often choose the wrong moment to 
try to teach somebody something. I so often step in and, you know, stick my big foot in my mouth and, you know, say something stupid at the wrong time. Why, I can remember the first time I had to take my wife to the emergency room. Not for what you might be thinking, but it was a wrestling match gone awry there where she dived at me for a takedown and I ducked out of her way and she slammed into a post with her head. She got a little cut on her head, right, and she was bleeding there. So we, we do things like that in my house. I don't know about your house, but we like to have fun and get a little rowdy sometimes. But. And, and I remember looking at it, and she was crying, and I'm going, well, what's the big deal? I mean, that's not, very, that's not a big cut, you know? And I, and, and I made the mistake of saying, you know, I've seen worse. <laughs> to my wife, guys. So you can only imagine the disappointment there and... The anger and, man, the looks I got at the hospital, too. I was was treading very carefully there. But Jesus knew that was not the time for teaching with his disciples. It wasn't the time to, you know, rail on his guys and say, come on, guys. You know, you could have done better than this. I'm so thankful for the gracious attitude of Jesus Christ, especially in my life. He overlooks my faults until that right moment comes when it's time to work on that issue. When it's time, and he knows that my maturity level's there, and the desire in my heart, which he's planted there, by the way, is there to work through that issue. The Lord knows. He knows when to deal with our weaknesses. But here, his hour has come. The hour that he's been put on the earth for. The hour of his death for our sin. Verse 43, we continue, says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So this was a a hastily assembled group of servants of the high priest, temple guards, and a a cohort of regular Roman soldiers. They've kind of been hastily thrown together into a big group and sent specifically by the high priest at the will of the Sanhedrin council, that political and religious body that made the the governing decisions for the Jews living there in Palestine. Verse 44, now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And so it was that Jesus, we see, was betrayed by the kiss of a friend. Or was it? Judas's kiss was a kiss that revealed really how hypocritical he had become. Judas was the son of perdition called that name by Jesus himself, meaning that he had never come to trust in Jesus as his Lord and therefore was lost. Satan had entered into him at this point, Scripture tells us, taking advantage of his love for money and his lack of faith. And Judas had sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver. His sad act of betrayal has gone down in history as the ultimate stab in the back. His use of the words, Rabbi, Rabbi, as if he were greeting Jesus on any normal day, at any normal occasion. And his use of a kiss 
to identify him to a crowd of Satan's servants, they all show us how fake his heart had become. This certainly had to have been one of the most tragic parts about the final hours in Jesus Christ's life. To have one that you know so well, that you spent so much time with, come to you as if all were normal. Only to learn that his heart is as cold as ice. Some of you are here today have felt what Jesus no doubt is feeling in our passage of scripture. That feeling of close, intimate betrayal. It leaves you speechless. Your stomach feels as if it's fallen out of your body. It hurts. Perhaps it was a father or a mother, an aunt or an uncle. Perhaps it was a husband or a wife or maybe even your own child that stabbed you in the back, so to speak. And it hurts. A good friend someone you trusted. It hurts because you thought that this person was on your side. You thought they were your friend. You thought they were your loved one. Listen, today you can know that Jesus Christ knows how you feel. He can identify with you in your pain because he experienced every temptation that you and I are subjected to in the human life. Yet he was without sin, showing that he is strong. He's able to resist. He's the overcomer. He's the one who shows us a way out. He gives you hope in the midst of your pain today. You see, he can do more than just identify with you and you being betrayed by someone you thought loved you, someone that should have been there for you, someone that was supposed to be on your side. See, Jesus can bring healing to your heart. He alone has the power to bring peace and healing to a broken heart. So let his love and his faithfulness wash over you today. If you're that person here this morning who's been betrayed, you know the feeling that I'm talking about. Jesus would say to you this morning, Lo, I am with you always. He's never left you. He would say to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you can let that be your security. You can let that begin to bring the healing medicine from the pain of betrayal in your life. On the other hand, there are probably some of us here today that need to examine our hearts and to see if we aren't being a fake like Judas was. Let his story be a warning to all of us because if we're honest, there's a bit of Judas in all of our souls. We need to be aware of our own love for Jesus here today. We need to be checking our own spiritual temperature, so to speak. And we need to find out if our own worship has grown cold this morning. Has your worship of Jesus Christ grown cold and unloving have you come to the house of the Lord Jesus this morning mouthing the words of hymns going through the motions of worship and yet in your heart of hearts you're far from him 
Have we fallen into the ritual of Sunday morning church? Where you can call it in, man. Hey, it's a song, announcements, four songs, offering, song, teaching, song. Then we're gone. It's going through the motions. Sunday morning church. Check it off. Get it done. Move on. We can do it without even feeling a stirring of love for God or His only Son, Jesus Christ. I believe that we all have a bit of Judas in our hearts. Let's only hope this morning and pray that unlike Judas, that in our case we've actually been born again. That we've actually been made alive by the Spirit of God. And that we are not sons and daughters of perdition ourselves. There's a thin line between Judas and Peter, church. There's a very thin line between Judas and Peter, friends. It's the thin line called saving faith. It's the difference between the demons who can look and know that God is real and cower and tremble and yet turn from Him and choose not to obey. It's the difference between someone whose heart is pricked when we sing about the life and death and resurrection of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. And who says, I love that man. I want to serve him. I want to follow him. I don't care what it takes. It's something that can't be worked up. It's something that no amount of drumming you to action will make sincere. It can't be faked as Judas faked it. It's a gift of God's grace. And it's available to all today who will receive His Son. So have you received Him? Have you, in your heart, said yes to Jesus this morning? And are you continuing to say yes to Jesus this morning? I believe the Bible teaches that we're to live a life of surrender. That's a daily surrendering, guys. Hey, we might be messing up today. But when we know it, what do we do about it? When it's brought to our attention, do we rocks, you know, uh, rock that heart a little bit harder and just say, you know what, never mind. I'm going to continue in what I'm doing. I don't care that I could be off or wrong here. I don't care about that. I'm doing what I want to do. We need to cultivate a heart that says yes to the Lord Or are you here this morning and you're blocking him out? Even now, you're hiding from him in the shadows. You're hoping no one's going to notice that you have a fake relationship going on. You see, Jesus loves you too much, my friend, to let it go. That's why you happen to be here this morning hearing this sermon today. Please listen to him as he speaks to your heart. This is what he said to the church in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He said, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me. Do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Church, if those words are for you today, I pray that you'd receive them from the Lord Jesus and know that, hey, he loves you. 
The formula is not try harder. The formula is, hey, confess it. Agree with God about your, your sin, what you're doing wrong. Turn away from it. Turn to Him. Come back to your first love. The things that you did at first when you first began to know Him. Or maybe you don't know Him and you're coming to Him for the first time. You're just enjoying Him. Enjoying a relationship. Learning about someone that loves you just for who you are. Accepts you for who you are. Forgives you. Takes away your shame. Makes you a new person. Let's return to the narrative in Mark chapter 14, verse 46. It says that then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now this one was Peter, probably trying to split the man's skull. But he's a fisherman, right? He's not a soldier. So he totally misses here. Didn't pay attention in his CHL class. Didn't go to the range and pass the range qualification, you know, where you split targets with your sword, probably. But he missed. But thankfully he missed, right? (laughs) Because we know from John's gospel that Jesus took the time to actually pick up the guy's ear and put it back on his head and, and to heal him. All the while maintaining control somehow. Doesn't that intrigue you? It really intrigues me to think that somehow, you know, a brawl never broke out in this situation. What does that tell you? It tells you Jesus was in control of this situation. He was in control of what was happening in these moments. He exudes an overwhelming sense of power here that no one even moves. And Jesus has time to just pick up the ear and to put it back on and say in verse 48... He answers and says to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. So Jesus here, he's not protesting his arrests, only the manner in which they're approaching him. As if he was some violent criminal. Some guy that has murdered people or something and they've all got clubs and knives and, you know, swords. And they're coming out against him. And then the next minute, it's all over. He's alone. Every single one of his closest friends and companions leaves him. Look in verse 50. They all forsook him and fled. Jesus is experiencing the frailty of humanity in this moment. As much as they all said they would be there for him, not a single one was selfless enough to put their own life on the line and to die with him. I believe the difference is that they had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. We look today, and there is, if you look back on the history of the Christian church, there are literally millions that have laid their life down for Jesus Christ. What is the difference? It's they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They've been given a power that is supernatural, the ability to step in and to stand for Jesus Christ in the moment when it counts. Most recently in our history, you know, and most famously probably that we can all recall together are the lives of the 21 Coptic Christians that were killed by ISIS on the beach. Their throats were cut because of their belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They died for Him that day. It's touched our shores in the form of a a, a mass shooting in Charleston, Carolina, South Carolina. 
at the church where nine people were killed in a prayer meeting by someone that was spewing hatred straight from Satan. And those saints immediately went to be with the Lord because they trusted in Jesus Christ. Listen, let this be a lesson for us here today that there may come that time when our lives are to be put on the line. Hey, we can't deny that. Yeah, we live in a great country. We live in a great country, one of the best. The gospel of Jesus Christ is one of the foundations of our nation. You can see it everywhere in the government. As corrupt as the government is growing and getting and all that, hey, guess what? There's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of God. (laughs) And we see the effects of that power of God in our nation from the roots up, guys. You can't deny it. While I lived in Costa Rica, I had many a conversation with people from Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, Belize, uh, San Salvador, and many of the countries down there, as well as Costa Rica. They're just talking to me and saying, hey, you can tell there's a difference. You can see that the nation of the United States was founded on principles that come from the Bible. And they could recognize easily the difference between what their countries and what was going on in their governments and what our country had been founded on. The power of the gospel. It's undeniable, guys. But listen, we need to have a lesson here today that, hey, we might come to that day. We need to make a decision. And honestly, in all honesty, we really come to those decisions every day in little ways, in little things. What's my priority going to be today? How am I going to represent the Lord today? So all of that, it's a part of of this. And I need to keep moving because I'm getting caught up on this. But listen, I also want to say this. Don't put your trust in those around you. Because they'll leave you perhaps bitter by not meeting your expectations. Just as Jesus experienced here. Even the best and closest of friends, as well-intentioned as they might be, Even the pastor of this church, it's me, I might not be there for you. I'm copping out right now, okay, just in case you didn't know that. So if I'm not there for you, don't put your trust in me. Don't put your trust in the staff of this church. Don't put your your trust in the closest friends around you. We are human. We're frail. We're weak. I can't be there for everybody, guys. It's not physically possible. Now, if we want to whittle the church down to about 10, I'll make a promise. But we're not going to do that. So listen, so listen don't, get, don't get your expectations you know, unmet or, or, or falling short of those expectations that you have. Jesus knows this experience. He experienced the pain of it. And he can identify with anybody that has been through this when the ones that should have been there for him were gone. He offers security, though, his spirit living in you so that you'll never be alone. we got to keep going. Verse 51. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. What, what? What is this? This is what we might call the monogram of the painter, guys. Mark himself, a young man at this time, probably maybe a young adolescent at this point in time, 
They believed that it was at his house, his mother's house in Jerusalem, where the Passover meal was held in the upper room. And he, being a young man in the household, saw all the disciples and Jesus get up after they sung a hymn and go out. And he probably got out of bed and wrapped a sheet around him and followed them along. That's what many commentators believe. And so this is kind of the, he's, he's kind of telling the story of his own story. You know, he's a hero of his own story here. The monogram of the painter, marking his work with a little personal touch into the writing. So he's, you know, there in his rap sheet following Jesus, and somebody goes to grab him and arrest him too, and he leaves the sheet and flees naked. Who says the Bible isn't interesting? This is better than movies, guys. It's a good sense of adventure here. Verse 53, they, they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance. Right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. You know, it's ironic, isn't it? Peter was the one who once followed Jesus Christ more closely than the others and is now following from a, different, from, from a distance. I wonder if there are any Christians here in our midst today that Jesus would look at, and you, he would look at you and he would say to you, Hey, you once followed me closely. What's going on? Now you're following me at a distance. What changed? We need to take the time to think through that question. Take the time to look back and say, you know, what did happen? What has happened to my heart? What's going on with me and the thing that should matter most in life? My relationship with my creator. Would to God that all of us would be at a close distance with Jesus Christ, right there by his side. Did you know that's where he wants you? He doesn't want you out in front of him, <laughs> taking charge. I'm going to do this, Lord, you know. And he doesn't want us behind, following at a distance. Wait up, Lord. He wants us right there at his side, walking with him through life. That's what Jesus is looking for. Let's go on with this spectacle here that's presented to us as a trial before the Sanhedrin, beginning verse 55. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even their testimony did their testimony agree. So they couldn't even get their testimony straight. In fact, what they said there in verse 57, 58, and 59, that's that's all false testimony. Should have been thrown out. But it was false because they were confused about what Jesus meant when he had talked about raising the temple in three days. Jesus had been referring to not uh, not the temple there of the Jews, but his own body as a temple. And he had said that even if they destroyed his temple, the body, Within three days, that temple would be raised up again, speaking of his resurrection, of course. But the people who were testifying against him, they didn't understand that. And this is why it seems that they couldn't piece their testimony together. It was a false testimony. You know, I find that to be true with many today who uh, would speak accusations against Jesus Christ and against Christianity. You know, so often they don't really understand Jesus And so because they failed to grasp an understanding of Jesus, what he was all about, his person, his teaching, 
Because they don't grasp the gospel, which is the key to unlocking understanding about Jesus Christ. Their arguments are frail. Their arguments are confused. We need to pray that their spiritual ears would be opened by the Holy Spirit to hear. And that they would understand Him. But until God does that work, we can only pray for them. Verse 60 The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So let's, let's take a look at what's happening here in this trial. The high priest is finally, you know, the, it's, a rid- it's a ridiculous trial. With all this false testimony being presented, nothing's agreeing. Finally, the high priest has had enough of it, and he stands up right in the middle of the trial. This is unheard of. Okay, the high priest did not stand in the midst of a trial. To, for him to stand up, this shows how upset he is at this point. Shows us the trial's not going according to his plan. And because the witness's testimony is not lining up, he's got to take things into his own hands. And so he steps up and he, he, he puts Jesus Christ under oath here by asking him, and he, and he says, aren't you going to testify? And that put, basically puts Jesus under oath to incriminate himself. And although that was totally not acceptable procedure, we see that the council's allowing it to happen. Let's see what Jesus' response is going to be. Is he going to answer truthfully to this question and thus incriminate himself? Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You know, one of the common arguments against Jesus Christ is that he never claimed to be God. Well, this passage throws that argument out the window. Because this is a very clear moment. This is a very clear proclamation of deity. Jesus is literally saying, as for myself, in contradistinction to all others, I am. That's that's the power of this word, this statement, I am. It's a declaration. It comes from the Hebrew tetragrammaton, Yahweh, or, or Y-H-W-H, which we translate Yahweh, and it's the same title that God told Moses to use when he went to the Israelites and they asked him, hey, who sent you? God told Moses to tell him, I am that I am has sent me. What does that mean? (laughs) Isn't that a weird title? You ever thought about that? What does I am mean? Well, what God's intention of that title is, is that I'm everything that you need. Everything that you need in the moment that you need it, I am. And Jesus uses the same words. He says, I am in contradistinction to everything and everyone else. I am. It's to the Jews at that moment was seen as blasphemy. They saw that this was a clear declaration of Jesus saying, I am. And so we cannot say that Jesus didn't never claim to be God. The rest of what Jesus says, he's using two references to Old Testament passages that were seen as messianic scriptures. That is, they pertain to the Messiah, the anointed one alone. The first, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. And the second one, coming with the clouds of heaven, that's a reference to when the Messiah would come back with all the saints of heaven with him. The clouds that surrounded him, and, they would, and he would judge the world. 
So in one moment, Jesus makes a clear declaration here that he is the great I am, the, the, the anointed one, the Messiah of the Jews. And at the same time, he subtly warns them that it's not him who's really on trial here. That he one day will return to judge the nations of the world. You see, in reality here, it's not Jesus that's on trial. It's all of humanity that is on trial. In reality, it's the high priest and the Sanhedrin that are immediately on trial, but it's also you and me. And what will we do with this Jesus Christ who's being presented to us as a savior of the world, the great I am, everything that we need? Verse 63, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. I don't want to read that too quickly. Let's read that once more. Verse 65, then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, to beat him, to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Have you ever been spit on? It's the ultimate sign of disrespect, isn't it? It's a 15-yard flagrant foul in football. Why? Because it's just disrespectful. And it's disgusting. But that statement there was considered to be blasphemous to the high priest. He had basically said that he was God. Therefore, he was worthy of the death penalty to them. And if they could get the Roman governor to agree to it, it was done. But once they had their verdict, they put that blindfold around him. They spit on him. They began to slap him. They began to beat him. They began to belittle him. And they poured out their hatred on him in that moment. Taking a cue from their superiors, we see the soldiers begin to get rough with him as well. They're trying to get him to prophesy who it was that had struck his face. Now, it's one thing to get punched in the face when you have an idea that's coming, isn't it? It's one thing to be punched when you have an opportunity to flinch and to tighten the neck muscles and to brace yourself. But it's entirely another when you're punched and you can't see it coming. And as they punched and spit and slapped I would like for you to remember the words of the prophet Isaiah, who some 700 years before this moment, he had a vision of the face of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ, and he wrote these words. So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. That's Isaiah 52 and verse 14b. C.I. Schofield the scholar gives us the literal translation of that. He says, so, so marred from the form of man was his aspect that his appearance was not that of a son of man. In other words, he no longer looked human, but more like a monster when they were finished with him. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5 will end as we began. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Listen church. There is much more going on than just Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin that day. The blows that were rained upon his face and his body were not merely from human beings, but it was according to the plan of his own father. His father God, he was smitten by God and afflicted. He was bruised. Why? Because of your sin, my sin, our failures. Also that God could look at you and me and so that he could see us as forgiven and healed in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus took the punishment that our sin deserves so that we could have the opportunity to know peace with God. Think about it for one minute today. One of the things that we've been studying on Wednesday nights through the book of Deuteronomy is that the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see that God hated sin because it was destructive, it destroyed. And we see how God feels about sin when we look at Jesus Christ and we study the Bible. And so we need to recognize today that what Jesus did is he actually stood in your place. We need to make this personal. He stood in your place and mine. For this beating, he took our place because he loves you and he loves me. He loves sinners who are being saved by grace. Do you know the peace that comes when you trust in him? Do you know the forgiveness that comes by believing that he died for you? Have you told Jesus that you love him and that you're thankful for what he's done for you. Let's pray.